Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers, an artist interview podcast produced in association with Beats Per Minute. I'm your host, Jeremy J. Fissett. On this episode, we get to meet Night Jewel. Night Jewel is the pseudonym of singer, songwriter, producer, instrumentalist, Ramona Gonzalez. In this chat, we discuss quite a bit about her brand new record, No Sun, which came out this past summer. We talk about how her musicology studies and her personal life kind of coalesced into this record, how she used strains of minimalism, used lots of negative space, as well as studies in women's lament from throughout history. We discuss her history in the chill wave scene and why so many non-white and or non-male artists are left out of these kinds of conversations. We talk about a lot more too, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. This is me meeting Night Jewel. That's fine. I usually leave them off unless people want them on. So, awesome works for me. <laughs> um, cool. How how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm a little sleepy today, but I'm drinking an espresso, so I should be more <laughs> peppy in a second. Yeah, we'll we'll chart your peppiness as we go through the talk. <laughs> <laughs> how have you uh, have you been lately over these past few months? Um. Well, I just, I finished um, an insane year of like Zoom teaching mid-June. Mm-hmm. So I've only just gotten a break um, recently. Um, and then that break kind of coincided with doing a lot of like family stuff and then promotion for the record. So I've tried to relax, but I've just been like really busy in a different way. Um, so... Yeah, it's just like juggling a lot of different things right now. Yeah, I'm a I'm a high school teacher, so I feel that Zoom teaching thing. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so intense. It's weird. It was weird. <laughs> I imagine high school teaching is, is even tougher than what I had to do, for sure. You Are you your college? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was weird. We ha- I mean, it was split. So, like, you know, some kids were in front of me and some kids were at home probably ignoring me, but... <laughs> you know whatever <laughs> yeah I made cameras a requirement um mm, I don't think so we were I, allowed to <laughs> I don't think I was allowed to either but I still made it a requirement good I for you like, <laughs> I was like go ahead report me to UCLA I don't care turn your cameras on <laughs> I know um, because you know I they're sympathetic. sleeping I, I was sympathetic if there was um you know a special case but right. because I'm a student as well um and getting my PhD I know why what camera off means most of the time it yeah. means you're doing something else mm-hmm. maybe sleeping <laughs> you know, maybe off in another room <laughs> hanging with your friends drinking wine yeah you know yeah. Um, yeah so but yeah so it's just been like a really intense year of teaching and then um visiting with family after not seeing them for a really long time um mm-hmm. and promoting the record I'm currently, um, I have a grant to do a research over the summer to write a conference paper. So I'm also like, you know, juggling that with, I'm trying to get in the zone with writing every day. Mm. Um, 
so like there's just like a lot of different like facets going on right now that I'm just trying to keep track of and get into a rhythm. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of plates spinning right now. <laughs> yeah, quite but a lot. Maybe that's not any different for you, really. Yeah, I mean, I always had like a bunch of different categories of work that need to slowly get finished. Hmm. But promotional cycle is definitely like a different beast. Um, it, it requires a different kind of like mindset than my favorite parts of the music process, which are <laughs> the creative parts. Um, but all in all, I'm really, I'm really happy with, um, the way things are going. So everything's good. Do you like that you have these other realms of your life though, that it's not all just the music? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, for, (laughs) for, um, the, you know, when I wrote my first record, I was, uh, in college studying philosophy and, by 2009, I had graduated, and so from that point on, during my music career, I was, you know, so missing academia and um, just learning, and I, over the years, considered different philosophy programs to enter, and was researching, looking at, you know, MA programs, looking overseas, um, you know, you know, I even thought about law school at one point, you know, just because I love like logic puzzles and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but nothing really stuck. I, I just, I didn't want to do those kinds of disciplines. So I always felt really sort of like wistful about um, academia. And it wasn't until um, a professor of mine um, named Bruno Luschwan, who sadly passed away recently, um, he was a professor of mine at Occidental. I was touring liquid cool and just talking to him about how myopic I felt like life is as a indie musician, as a career musician. And he told me about this musicology program at UCLA. And he was like, they love performers. They love artists. And I'm like, I've never even heard of that, you know, because <laughs> as, as like a person interested in philosophy, you know, it's like nothing is worthwhile except philosophy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I looked into it and it was kind of like that introduction to the program um, changed my life, you know, because now I'm getting to do what I love to do, all facets of what I love to do, which is studying music, studying uh, cultural concepts and history and, uh, and, and making music too. Mm. Yeah. Shout out to Bruno. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Um, so we should mention, uh, you have a new record, the one you mentioned coming out on August 27th called No Sun. Um, mm-hmm. it's coming out on Gloriette, which is your own label, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you've put up most of your own stuff, I think on your own label, except for a couple things here and there. Mm-hmm. What do you like about, what do you like most about working on your own label versus a label with maybe, I don't know, bigger scope or even like more money? Like, what do you actually, what do you personally like most about working on your own label? Um, I mean, probably getting all the profits would be mm, number that's one. That's a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two is not having to answer to a group of mostly white males mm. um, who are usually wealthy or just sort of like out of touch with like who I am as a person. Um, so those two things are definitely my favorite. Um, then the other part would just be like getting to see every little aspect of the process and getting to see how it works because 
that helped me to understand um, my own reactions to um, how the record is doing. You know, mm. being it's not mysterious to me. Like I see everything, so I know you know um, if the record is doing good or if the record's doing not so good or how you know the the, the sales are how many records get pressed and what sells out and what's too much and too little. Like, I don't know. There's just like no really delusions of grandeur. I, I just know exactly how it's going to roll. Mm. Um, and that's, I don't know. It just dispels this anxiety that I think a lot of musicians feel because they're just, they think it's this like really mysterious process. Um, I teach music business at Occidental and um, my running my own label really helped me to, teach about like the tactics for getting your music out there for understanding how things work behind the scenes you know and in my opinion it's something that even if you do go on a label that you really should know mm-hmm. going into the industry but i think because people hop on labels they just decide not to know and you know knowledge is power um so i do feel empowered having my own uh label yeah it kind of reminds me of um uh, a few months back, I talked to uh, Jason Olga from the Besnard Lakes, and uh, mm. they were saying how they've—I mean—they've been around for 20 years or so, and they've always done basically everything themselves for that exact reason. And then, you know, they're like, "Okay, so if we ever do need someone, we'll know if they are trying to, you know, screw us over, because right. we know we know how everything works because we've been doing it." So I would imagine there is a bit of security in kind of knowing all those different. Oh things. yes, oh absolutely. I mean labels will try to take money from you that is is they're not entitled to and if you're not looking at the fine print Mm -hmm. um you won't you won't ever know um and you know i have been taken advantage by people in this industry of course but Mm -hmm. um that's kind of you know par for the course but i think that um the advantage that i have is that i released my first record on gloria good evening i saw how it did i saw how it worked so that, that way I was able to compare that to the other labels I worked with. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't do as well as that, then I knew that they weren't doing their job pretty much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the only thing that's difficult about running a label is that you have to be like a businesswoman about your own work, which can be confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, standing outside objectively of your, of your creative um, work can be uh, a lot of like, you know, sort of like... Uh, mental gymnastics yeah because you have to also think like okay how is this going to do is this the right move but it's you like it's your work you're considering it's mostly choosing singles is the toughest mm. because you're like every song's a single <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of like polling goes around you know my friends mm-hmm. other people in the industry that i trust their taste i'll like email them of you know other artists like i uh, hit up like you know a number of my friends who are musicians and I'm like hi will you listen to this and tell me what your favorite songs are you know and then I like <laughs> put it all together um and so like that is the toughest part is, is choosing what songs are like quote the best right I'm never I'm never going to know the answer to that yeah so the so the fact that um this time was the first single from this one is that almost neither here nor there <laughs> no I never thought that that was a single oh okay um, and I again I went around I asked people to listen to the record and tell me what their favorite song was or not even their favorite but like what's the most interesting one what 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 one really tells them about the album Mm. you know like how the album's gonna go um and really just sort of like encompasses it 
Um, and it was kind of like across the board, that was people's top choice. Hmm. Uh, so I kind of thought to myself, you know, I'm going to trust what everybody is saying, you know, because they're just responding viscerally to this track. And then I thought about it a little bit more and I thought, you know, actually this would make for a great visual um, accompaniment. Mm. So I, I think that, you know, I'm going to make a video for this one and release it first. That makes sense. So it's been four years, we should say, since Real High, which was the last Night Jewel record. Um, what have been some of the sort of more notable shifts for you since then? Um, and how do you think this new record reflects those? I'm especially interested in this because um, you mentioned your, your studies um, in musicology, and I've read a little bit about this new record and how specifically the art of the lament and the woman's musical lament was sort of an integral piece of the puzzle for you. So how did that, and then also sort of just like life's changes, like how did that factor into this record? Well, um, you know, the life changes happened first. Um, mm. And that led to uh, a lot of potent feelings. Um, the musical lament practices is an interesting one because, you know, time has a weird way of proceeding. And although I hadn't thought about lament specifically in terms of scholarship before I wrote this record or wrote any of my music, I guess what my studies tell me is, you know, this is a practice that women have been doing since, you know, the beginning of time. Um, and women have been singing sad songs and they've been elected to sing sad songs. And over time, there's been conventions and techniques that have been developed to communicate that a song is sad. Um, I think, you know, in the professional like morning rituals in ancient Greece, it, it was obvious that people felt sad when they were singing because they were wailing or screeching or tearing mm. up their voice. But later things changed, you know, in early modern period where it wasn't just about screeching. Um, it, it was about doing certain musical techniques that were more subtle to communicate sadness. And those techniques are things that we have continued to utilize in popular music. And we're like unaware of it because it's just like such so ingrained in us. We don't even realize, you know, lilting of the voice, you know, certain key signatures, certain progressions, certain melodies, even tearing at your voice a little bit, like straining, you know, things like that. Like, these are just tropes that like continue to be used and that I use. So although I hadn't been studying women's laments previously, the cultural uh, sort of concept of lament just is a part of any female singer's process when writing a sad song. It just has to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going through this horrible period in 2018, you know, my marriage is, is ending, my husband leaves me, I'm, you know, in an intense state of grief. Um, and did I say to myself, I'm going to make a lament? No, I didn't even have any idea what that really meant. Mm -hmm. um, but I just conjured the feeling and used my musical skill and technique to communicate it, um, later realizing that a lot of what that meant was engaging with the history of um, women's mourning practices. Like kind of accidentally drawing on this inherited historic thing. I don't even know. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word accidentally. I would mm. just say, um, you know, uh, maybe it, involuntarily, like, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you, like, uh, for instance, there's, um, there's like a chord progression in Before I Go, which is um, a descending tetrachord and in A minor. 
And did I think about the fact that that is almost always used in classical music to signify elements? Absolutely not. Have I played <laughs> classical music my whole life? Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that that's more what I'm talking about. It's not accidental because it's, it's in my hands and in yeah. my soul. Um, but uh, the sort of cognitive awareness or intellectual awareness of that as a lament practice was something I became to know more about later once I began my PhD research. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like you, you did this thing without realizing it only to find out later, like, oh, that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Have you always been a super personal writer? Like, as it seems as you are on songs like Before I Go, which seem very, very personal? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm No, no, no. Uh, I'm quite the opposite, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, I write personal songs. I write from a personal perspective, but I, I think in the past, I was way more punk. I, I didn't like the idea of being all, like, vulnerable and um, personal or selling your story to attract attention. It always felt really cheap to me. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of like, you know, a little bit like uh, ironic about it or a little bit stuck up about it. I'd make a song that was personal, but was also kind of tongue in cheek. You know, there, there was always a little humor or something like that. You know, I could be very sincere, but I always wanted there to be layers of meaning. Yeah. Um, I think with this record, the layers of meaning are more embedded in like the poetry and the, and the production and the music in a different way. Um, where it's not like, uh, there's not a lot of like, uh, sort of layers of artifice going on, um, that would sort of like take you in a bunch of different directions. It's more just like an immersive, intimate experience. Um, and I think I was just ready to do that. Maybe it's my age, maybe it's the experience I was going through, but I was just ready to strip a bit of the artifice off of, um, my music. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because I, I did notice when listening to the record, I've listened to it a couple of times, it's, it is maybe your most minimalistic record. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you would disagree with that. I think it is. Yeah, it's very, it's very spare. Like you say, like the artifice sort of is gone. It's very, very intimate. That's a good word for it. You know, your voice is very upfront. Um, were you, I don't, let me rephrase. Are you sort of a minimalist at heart or was that just kind of like what happened i'm a minimalist at heart i okay. i i mean i um i because you've I had bigger albums before like bigger bigger well, sounding it's it sounds like that minimalism <laughs> is, is an odd thing it's 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 really perception mm. um it's kind of like loudness where we actually don't know how many decibels we hear um but we think something's loud. Um, it, it's, it's an odd thing, minimalism. But ever since I made my first record, I used to record analog. And so I was always working with eight tracks, you know, eight to maybe maximum 15. Um, and on One Second of Love, which was very similar, I used two tracks, um, Cape, and it was also very minimal, you know, a certain amount of tracks, and then, you know, building a little bit up from there. Um, but I've always been a minimalist. I always think less is more. Um, but it's it's not so much that there's um, less instruments or less track. It's that there's more um, empty space and mm. acapella and that the voice is louder and that there's not a lot of noise, you know, and not a lot of like excess sort of um, ambient sound. So I just wanted to really convey the feeling of isolation and aloneness that I was feeling and I had a lot of space um, when I was making these tracks because they were 
drawn from improvisations along to the sequencer. And there would just be moments where there would just be full on dead air. You know, I would be thinking of the next part or the next lyric. And I thought to myself, this is how I felt. You know, I felt like I just was so just alone existentially. And so the minimalism kind of comes from those moments of nothingness. And that, I think, is why it especially feels very fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of space. There's a lot of negative space yeah. kind of around the sounds here. That's unusual for me. Mm-hmm. I haven't really done a lot of that in the past. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the sequencing the sequences that you use, sequencers that you use, because you. Uh, I was going to ask specifically about a, uh, a tweet of yours, which sounds ridiculous, but I was going to ask about a tweet <laughs> of yours from the other day. Um, you said, I used the Moog Mother 32 to create the songs for this album built up from analog sequences only, no grid, no boom clap backtrack, just emotion, improvisation, and space. So can you break that down a little for people that I am partially a part of that may, may read that and be like, hmm, <laughs> exactly what does that mean? You know, because like Got I, it. you know, some of that's a bit of an unfamiliar language for me. So what was oh, the uh, gotcha. what was the process kind of like here? So um, the Moog Mother 32 is like a pretty like reasonably priced um, half modular um, sequencer um, that Moog made that like, you know, it's for like people like me who want the sound of a Moog, but like can't shell out like a few thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, what it is, is just like a really simple, like one oscillator or like, yeah, two, two oscillators sort of, um, uh, sequencer that, um, you can create patterns on it that will repeat ad finitum, you know, ad infinitum. Like um it say you want just like a sequence that's going um like one of my songs that's just hitting one note for, mm. you know, the entirety of the song. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, boom. I was gonna ask about that song in a minute. <laughs> um, it you know, if you just want it to be one note, let's say, or if you want it to be a series of notes, boom, 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 you know, whatever, whatever you want, you can program it to do that. Now, the thing is, is that because it's um, half analog, half digital uh, synthesizer, what that means is that um, you can record um, that sequencer and it will be recording to a rhythm that is not uh, set, meaning that it drifts in and out of time. It's, it's according to real time, not, you know, if you record an Ableton to a metronome, that, that's a grid, that's a set you know, time that um, is very rigid. Um, the Moog uh, just kind of, it drifts in and out of tuning, it drifts in and out of time. That's the difference between analog and digital sequencing, right? Um, it's the difference between MIDI and and just sound audio, right? Mm-hmm. So what I would do is that I would, you know, create a sequence on the Moog and record it into my DAW, my digital audio workstation, without the grid um, set in Ableton, meaning there's just no there's no set time signature, there's no set rhythm, no set tempo. So it's just in real actual space, Mm. you know? And this is, I mean, the comparison that you can make if you still don't know what I'm talking about is live music, you know? When you're a drummer and a guitarist are playing together, they're not playing to a a grid. (laughs) They're playing to each other's uh, feeling, rhythmic feeling. Um, Anyways, so what I did was that uh, that became my um, rhythmic center. Um, I feel like a lot of times with popular music, we have this hierarchical concept of how a song is supposed to be constructed that starts with drums at the bottom and vocals at the top. 
and it creates, um, you know, pop music, but it can be really confining if you want to create songs that don't, you don't want to have drums or you don't want to work in that hierarchy. You want something that thinks about music in a different way. Mm. Um, so my idea was, what if I just created a, an album with no drums at all? What if I just had a different rhythmic device that kept the pulse and the heartbeat for me? Um, so I would run the sequencer and um, improvise along to it for like 20 minutes at a time or so. You know, I would just play chords, sing on the fly, and I would record everything and then see if, if, a, if a song was there. Hmm. So are, and now you're like making my memory go fuzzy. Are there no drums or drum sounds on this record? There are. Um, okay. there's, percussion, there's percussion on several songs, but they were added later. Okay. So the, hier- the hierarchy is flipped. The drums were added last. Okay. Um, so that just means that they have a different sound. Yeah, than... they, they had to go to whatever was there as opposed to whatever's there having to go to the drums. I must consider the drums on this record more like a melody um, yeah. rather than, uh, than a boom clap backtrack. Okay. I get Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because usually you'd want like, you know, the 4-4, four, four, the 3-4 so that you know how to time everything else. But now what you did was you did everything else first and the drums had to time to that, basically. Yeah. And some of the, you know, I mean, for instance, like, um, like No Escape does not have a meter. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no there's no meter to that song that you could really identify. It changes constantly. So when you have a song that doesn't have a meter, it just gives you a different sensation and music should give you different sensations mm-hmm. than what they always give you so there is an instrumental interlude here called um number 14 which to me felt almost like sort of like cinematic kind of like noir-ish mm-hmm. um it's almost sort of the centerpiece of the album almost literally um <laughs> why what is this song what does this song do for you for the record and and i'm curious were there ever going to be words or was it always going to be instrumental the record initially started just from instrumental uh, experiments. So in the beginning of 2018, I got the sequencer and was only recording with Fender Rhodes um, and the sequencer. So I made about like 40 instrumental tracks with just those two elements before I started writing lyrics or coming up with songs, really. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen until the summer. Um, so number 14 was like the 14th thing that I created with mm. Jeff Rhodes and Sequencer. Um, and I was trying to get at something because, you know, the thing is, is like these the sound palette and production choices for No Sun didn't just like arise out of like working on it for one day. Mm. It was a really it was a deliberate process where I spent like six months thinking about like, how could I make something new, <laughs> you know, sound. Yeah. Um, and that required getting used to like the sound of the sequencer, what, what I wanted to do with it, like what, what was it good for? What could I use it for? Um, and number 14 was like, basically when I had like kind of a breakthrough about like what I could use it for. Um, and it was just meant to be instrumental. And it really, to me, had a, a large depth of feeling within the palette of sound. I just, it felt very lonely and, um, and the, the record is kind of lonely. So when I started piecing the like song songs together uh, on the record, I kept coming back to that track and thinking like this, this is a part of my album. 
um, I never heard vocals for it ever. Yeah. Um, and uh, I asked my friend Brian um, Alan Simon, who's a horn player here in LA, if he would contribute sax to the song. Um, and yeah, he I was going to ask a bunch who of, plays the sax. Yeah, he did a bunch of improvisations on it, and I pieced it together um, into sort of painting. And uh, it just it just worked. It just to me the thing that I like about the album is that the instruments each have a voice. It's like there's my voice, but then the drums have a voice. You know, the the sax has a voice, and you know everybody's kind of singing together. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I was going to ask about the sax because it is um, sort of a surprising and really lovely element to that song. It, it's it's so pretty the sax, and it complements the the sound so well. Yeah, I love that. Um, so you mentioned a couple of the sounds you, you've you've used on this record, but one that I also specifically wanted to ask about was your voice, because it seems like your voice is maybe being used as an instrument in addition to a melody and lyric deliverer. It's also sort of an instrument unto itself, maybe more than ever. You know, you have like these, often you have these big sort of choruses of your own voice, these twins of your own voice, especially on the opening track. Um mm-hmm. What were you trying to do with your vocals here that felt different, maybe, than on prior records? Were you were you trying to achieve that kind of like choral effect here? Um, I mean, I love background vocals. Um, <laughs> I think I, 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 as far as like what I was trying to do with my voice, um, the vocals were one of the only things. There, there was a few things that were not recorded at my house. You know. Uh, the vocals and the drums and um the point of the vocals was basically just to make them pristine Mm. um and really really soft and pristine just feeling so close to the listener yeah they're almost they're almost like a string section in a way (laughs) yeah i mean especially on this time the background vocals are definitely Mm -hmm. like a pad or something they're they're just you know when you're creating background vocal parts they just have to contrast what the main vocal was doing a lot of the time you know mm-hmm. um so the idea was just to create stacks of harmony um that could provide the like you know counterpoint for what the main vocal was doing which was being uh, very direct hmm um i'm curious who if anyone was like whose work was sort of um keeping you afloat in this time or inspiring you in this time? Because for me, as a listener, um, the only things that really sprung to mind for me were um, in uh, the first song, you, I think you kind of alluded to it earlier with the the single note for a while. Um, the first song opens with about a minute of a, you know, a single note. It gave me, I don't know if this is a, a silly comparison maybe, but it gave me a lot of like, oh, Superman vibes. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, lovely. You know, like that one note kind of thing, just repeating. Yep and then slowly evolving. And then I kind of got a little bit of like Juana Molina vibes. Yeah, um, I haven't heard Juana Molina, but um, I'd say like the main, I, I didn't, I wouldn't say that I had like a like touchstone for exactly the actual craft of the song. Mm-hmm. Really, those were just coming from sort of like an innate, just like a first thought, best thought kind of place. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, like working with the sequencer and with the Fender Rhodes, I wasn't really thinking about other genres. I was just thinking about like the sound. Right. I mean, in in some cases, I was thinking about ambient music. Like 
I was sort of like thinking about what makes like Apex Twin good? What makes <laughs> Apex Twin different than Brian Eno? What makes Brian Eno different than Susumu Yokoto? What, you know, I was thinking about like these minimalist ambient records and I'm like, how do they pull this off? Yeah. You know? Um, so I studied that for a while and I took a bunch of notes and thought about like, uh, how simple can I go? Mm. You know? As far as like the like other pop music, you know, the the main people that I was looking to, not for inspiration as far as like how the songs are made, like the songwriting, but just ethos were uh like Frank Ocean's Blondes and hmm. Tirza. Um oh, I could see Tirza's that. Devotion. Yeah. And not because uh like I said, not because the songs were the same or anything like that. Songwriting is super different. Um, but uh, looking to them to see like how far can you take pop music, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, if I would start to get doubtful, like maybe this is too out there, or maybe this is too simple, or maybe pop music has to do this or that, uh, I would just stop myself in my tracks and just listen to those records and just be reminded that you know you can do anything you want. Um, so those records, especially Blondes, I listened to like pretty much religiously as I was making this record. Hmm. Um, and then I listen to just a lot of jazz, honestly, and a lot of ambient music. Yeah, I could see, I could see sort of like the strains of that in in this record, just sort of like informing it as opposed to maybe being touchstones, as you say. Yeah, yeah. I I I think like you know, um, I tried to make this really just like a pure expression of like who I am and like my musical background as opposed to doing a sort of like marketing research campaign around like what's cool right now. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've never worked like that. I just don't find it inspiring. Um, So uh, yeah, it was just about artists who are like working against the grain, uh, but are Mm. still creating like catchy infectious tunes out of like very odd elements. To be super nerdy um, and speak in like teachers, teacher talk, it feels like work, you know, this is like your work's consulted versus your work cited. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You just no, like no, listened, great... you you like took it in and then you're like, all right, I'm going to go and continue. That's a great, that's a great analogy. I like that. <laughs> I should make all my students listen to this and, <laughs> so that totally. they get the difference. <laughs> exactly. No, that's a good idea. Um, so before we move off the, the, the new record, I did have one more question about the name of the record because I um, had I had been unaware of the Sun Ra song that gives it its name, um, When There Is No Sun, which ends your record. It's a cover of the Sun Ra song. Um, what was it about this song that made you want to cover it in the first place and then to go even further to name the record after it? Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, I was creating all these instrumental tracks I was starting to write songs, like actual songs. Um, I was, you know, I didn't have a place to live um, during this time that I wrote most of the songs for No Sun. And I was staying at a friend's house. And I mean, I've, I've always loved Sun Ra, um, you know, like love his, re- his records and have listened to them forever. Um, and a friend like sent me that track uh, and said, remember this, you know, kind of thing. I love this track. And I was listening to it and uh, I was like, just really inspired by it. 
at the time. And I decided for fun just to do a cover of it while I was just in my room. I mean, I was, I was carrying my, my setup with me everywhere I went. Um, and I just started recording it. And when I finished recording it, I thought to myself, oh, this, this could be something. I think this album could, this could be part of this, this could be an album, you know, like with the other songs that I had. It was kind of like a sh defining moment where I, I started to see the, the album coming together. Um, and naming the album after that track, I mean, I think the lyrics really speak to something I was feeling at the time. Um, you know, I know that at least for Sun Ra, um, his idea of uh, a world beyond in, in space has a lot to do with, um, you know, feeling like your place on earth is um, not your, your ideal based on your position in society. And that there is like a world beyond where things would be more equal, um, more just. And, um, you know, uh, that at the same time, while that's a that's a place that has a lot of potential, it's it's a it's a scary place, you know. It's um, to imagine a world beyond the one we have now takes a lot of courage and bravery, um, I think, um, for him to to imagine. And the lyrics, you know, I'm not putting words in his mouth, but this is just like my interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a world beyond where there's like this huge universe, but you know, if the sun's not shining all the time, it, it, it's, it's a scary, it's a scary thought, you know, because mm -hmm. all we know is, is earth. I think, I, I think that that existential position that I hear in his lyrics was something I was, I was feeling um, at the time that, you know, in order to move on to another place where you are in a better place, a lot of scary sort of falling into this nothingness has to occur. Um, and that's just a part of transition and 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 future you know mm. um so that to me like no sun i think can be seen as like a kind of like negative thing but i don't think that is what sun ra ever meant but it is scary <laughs> mm. you know um but life is scary you know yeah. especially especially for um people who are not you know treated justly i think life is always pretty scary um so i i just thought that that was like um something that felt inspiring to me at the time and i just admire him so much as a musician and a, and a creator um and i wanted to do it justice and and hope hopefully it did was there ever a different name for the record no Okay, so it was always it was always going to be in in homage almost to to him. I mean, the name of the record isn't an homage to him. It's just it sums up the the feeling, mm. me, you know. Yeah, I think the homage is just in the cover, right? Itself, yeah. So before we start wrapping up, I did want to ask. Um, even though this happened a little while ago, um, since I since I have you here, I wanted to ask about the whole chill wave thing. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Um, so I don't remember when it was that um, you had uh, spoken on. I think it was started on Twitter, and then I'm sure other people interviewed you about it. But where you were talking about sort of the history of chill wave 
it was shortly after some publications that maybe we'll keep nameless. We'll decide in a minute. Um, oh, no, no, you can talk about it. Larry, Larry and I ha have talked extensively about it. So okay. It's not even like taboo or anything. Okay. So yeah, it was a pitchfork piece. <laughs> and basically it was the history of chill wave. And you were basically, you weren't like angry. You were just sort of pointing out that a lot of the history and a lot of the discussions around this genre that sort of dominated like the late, 2000s early 2010s um we're, we're kind of the, the conversation was pretty dominated by the white guys and you were sort of talking a little bit about how these conversations frequently if not always left out people like yourself or other women or especially women of color who did contribute to this genre um i mean you put out your debut record right when that genre was starting you were you were at the forefront of it when it was kind of beginning um, why do you think that happened and continues probably still to happen around genres like that or certain musical movements? And, uh, do you even still consider your work to be within this realm? Um, I never considered my work to be. Okay. Within <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know, you know, you, you sidebar, I don't know if any chill wave musician actually would call their work chill wave. I think honest. that the musicians cited by Larry would consider themselves chill wave for okay. sure. Okay. Um, I think that 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 is fine for them. Um, I think that Pitchfork was just a super white girl culture at the time. It always mm -hmm. had been. Um, I pointed that out in a number of different ways during that time in 2009 that not having to do with me at all. They mm -hmm. never covered black music. Um, they never covered they they oh, they covered way too much white indie rock done by men. I mean, this is something that I had been tweeting about forever and people got super pissed at me like who were like oh. defending their friends at yeah. Facebook or whatever I mean I remember this I can't even remember what his blog was but I said something about how you know oh look Pitchfork is getting into rap music good for them <laughs> and some guy like came after me defending them I'm like who who needs to defend Pitchfork I don't get it yeah but so they're, I they're always, doing fine <laughs> I, I yeah exactly I had always been talking about this you know they sort of had problem with night jewel since the beginning I, i'm not sure why um i think it was just because i was pretty punk and i didn't give a shit and i also didn't pander to journalists i wasn't trying to be their friends i wasn't like emailing them or kicking their ass which i think a lot of people did mm -hmm. um i was also just like you know not i was a weirdo and i was an unlikely person to be in this industry i had no history i had no like famous dad who's a Mexican pop star. I didn't have any money. I, I didn't, I wasn't on a label. Um, I was just like this weird random person who had made something cool. So I think that that was like hard for them to, to put me into that narrative. It didn't make sense to them that I would have like invented a genre, you know? Right. So they had to, they had to use, uh, you know, what they saw as like legitimate sources for that. Hmm. Now, the fact that Larry, after that much time, would then go back, do research, and still continue to that narrative. That was what was crazy to me. Yeah. It, it's just like an insane missed opportunity to, uh, to lift up um, a woman, a Latina woman, to you know, give her a space to say, wow, she, she worked on this genre that primarily has to do with production and recording, which women aren't like, you know, lauded for of you know course. that would have been an opportunity to make a lot of other girls a lot of other you know women in a similar position to have someone to look up to um so and i didn't even read the article or know about the article it was fans who sent it to me 
Mm. And they were like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I'm like, reluctantly, I do have to claim that I started this because I was the first person to release music that was dubbed this. I inspired these artists that Larry wrote about. These artists that Larry wrote about, I was their favorite band. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm not even yeah. making that up. These are people who like put me in their MySpace top eight. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I, it's, it's, just, it's not even controversial, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so for me, it was just like, Larry, what, what the fuck? Yeah. But then we did our interview. Um, yeah, I think I actually remember reading that now that you mentioned that. You know, he was super cool. It, it, it was a good interview, you know, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't change the fact that, you know, they've never, they haven't updated the article. You know, no, they haven't said, they haven't, you know, corrected anything, you know, they haven't made an effort, but it's like, that's life, you know, it's like, yeah. I, I think that like a lot of people are used to not being credited for their work. And certainly, you know, uh, people, uh, black women uh, and men who have, you know, done a lot of the legwork for like all of American popular music were not recognized by Pitchfork at all until very recently and yeah. so i can't even complain because that was some crazy shit and um you know it's just wrong and it continues to go on i mean we see this stuff with tiktok um you know we're there's just gatekeepers and and it's wrong mm -hmm. but hopefully hopefully you know it changes over time i'm not making any bones about it because i never wanted to be associated with show wave in the first place because i think <laughs> it's lame um <laughs> But it's like, I just had to say something because I thought it was like kind of absurd, you know, even yeah. if I don't want to be like associated with it, I'm just like, come on, do your research. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position. Like I, my work is recognized by that website and, you know, they're, they're supporting the new album and they are recognizing my work. So it's like, I, I feel very, in, I feel in a privileged position and there's plenty of people that aren't being recognized at all, that nobody knows their name at all. And they're doing a lot of legwork and they're inventing genres every day mm -hmm. and they're not being recognized because they don't fit into this like cookie cutter mold of what these blogs see. But hopefully, you know, that's changing with time. And um, that's all we can, that's all we can say really. Yeah. Well, as someone personally who spends not, a little time sending his work to various blocks <laughs> to no response. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a trick. <laughs> it's hard out there, you know? It and, is hard out there. You know, and there's so many people now that it's like almost impossible unless you have some sort of leg up. I don't know. That's what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, I tell my students that it really is just uh, the most important thing is about artistic vision and mm -hmm. you know there's no magic formula for the business of it but if your vision is strong then that will that will get recognized over time i i truly believe that you know yeah. it may not be recognized on like um you know billboard magazine but people will recognize it and there'll be a slow sort of um incremental build i mean that's what happened with me you yeah. know um well one second and, to love was kind of a turning point in visibility at least although i know that brought its own sort of surfeit of, of issues as well. One second of love brought a little bit more visibility. Yeah, it did. Um, but in a way, I already kind of had a lot. I mean, I think I think it made Nigel a little bit more respected outside of like, you know, cutesy pop stuff. Like, mm -hmm. so the New York Times was writing about it, you know, and Uncut was writing <laughs> about it. And I was like, all right. You know, I felt good <laughs> about that. Yeah. Um, but um, 
I think I think even without like that recognition, the music would have built over time. You know, when I taught like one inspiring story that I hear um, my ex talk about actually is working with um, Anderson Pock and um, right at the beginning of of his work with um, Knowledge. And, um, you know, I guess Anderson was in the studio recording something, his vocals, and my ex was like, oh my God, like, you're incredible, dude. Like, how do you, how do you put those vocals together so quickly and, and the harmonies and the lyrics, like, it's insane. And Anderson's response was, dude, I've been doing this for 12 years. <laughs> So, you know, and look at him now. It's like, yeah. I think that there's this expectation that you're supposed to make it right away. And that is definitely an illusion. Yeah. It's an absolute illusion. Well, it's um, funny so, because we see those bands happen even every, there's, there's new ones every year where like, you know, every member of the band is somehow like 19 years old, but they are <laughs> so wildly the exception, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I say my, I say to my students, I'm like, you want, you think that you're going to be the person to make the next mega pop hit? Like, you think that's going to be you to make a generic <laughs> pop hit? I'm like, nah, there's 50 other Disney stars and upcoming Disney stars that are making that pop hit before you and they're 10 years younger than you. Yeah, absolutely. Make something <laughs> interesting. Make something fascinating and captivating and cool. Yeah. Don't make something generic. Have a vision. That's the only way, you know? It's like, there's there, those those kids doing karaoke on youtube are way ahead of you and they're like seven <laughs> years old <laughs> and I, I never saw myself that way i never saw myself as a pop star or a pop musician ever ever i was yeah. always like i'm a weird creative person i think if you stick to your guns in that way um you're bound to get um some attention for it if you really stay true to yourself you know yeah and it's interesting you you, you make that note about how in addition to not only like basically jumpstarting this whole genre, you, you know, you were a producer of music and that in itself was um, like troublesome to these, these gatekeepers because you were, a, make sense of it. yeah, because you were a, a female producer, a woman of color producing. And they're like, what? Like, what was that? Well, like it, it didn't make sense of it. And also the music was way weirder yeah. than, uh, than like a washed out who's making like, super silky polished pop you know yeah i was making like some weird stuff <laughs> and i admit that and it was not high quality i was trust me i was as shocked as everyone else that people were responding to it because i i you know i didn't even my eight track was not set up in the right way and there was way too much white noise on everything <laughs> so i was also like surprised and i was embarrassed that i hadn't recorded it better but i also think that's like what gave it its charm you know and yeah ultimately it's not how pristine it is it's about the choices that you make the arrangement choices the instrumental choices you know where you put the bass and like wh what the choice what the choices are with like that timbre and when it comes in and out like those were the things that i was good at you know yeah. not necessarily like the art of recording recording and i think you know there was like a lot of like hate on me for it being lo-fi and i'm like bro i didn't go to m music recording school i don't have like <laughs> you know a fifty thousand dollar budget that my daddy is giving to me to send me to like you know ocean way to record this record i literally am have an eight track it's on the floor of my house mm -hmm. you know but none of that was you know the the question of like power and the question of hierarchy and all that kind of stuff was not something that pitchfork was questioning at the time and they so and they were and, and there was like no one questioning it no, yeah. no, none of the big ones anyway. 
because they weren't able to see those dynamics and those hierarchies within the stuff that they were reviewing, they couldn't have an, a balanced stance about um, reviewing things because they were comparing artists who were coming from very different places. Mm -hmm. um, and those comparisons, I felt like were really illegitimate at times. And now it seems to me that they're really taking things on their own terms um, more and yeah. more. It's like, I never thought I'd compliment um, Pitchfork, but I mean, <laughs> the, the thoughtfulness that um, people are, like, just like the review that they just gave of, of Before I Go, the, the sheer like thoughtfulness of that really struck me. Um, I found it moving, honestly. And mm -hmm. it just means to me that they're really taking this music on its own terms. And um, I feel really grateful for that, to be honest. Yeah, it's nice that you've, you've, you've kept doing what you have always, what you've wanted to do how you wanted to do it. And you've seen the, the stone kind of turn a little bit. It's really, I, yeah, I'm just super grateful. That's all, that's all I can say. Yeah, you know? like it's great you didn't have to do some huge upending of your sound just to get this. Like you, you really are making, you've always made what you wanted to make, I presume. And it seems like you still are. Yeah. And I'm yeah. glad that people can come along with me for it, including, you know, the people who've always listened to my music, you know, that they're not like WTF, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also nice like, that, that, you know, women in production are, are getting more of a voice and more of a, a presence on, on these bigger pages because I mean, what was it like the mid 2010s that it took until like Bjork started getting respect as a producer? Like, even oh though she's God, been producing her own shit, at least I mean, like at least co-producing her own shit since the very beginning. I know that whole narrative is so tragic. Again, it, it's so sad. So this is why I feel like I'm saying it's like I'm not even trying to complain. I haven't right, even, right. I haven't even experienced the kind of like discriminatory practices that other people have. So yeah, I know. I talked. I, I talked with um. I talked with the guys from Matmus um a few months ago who who helped her on Vespertine, and I brought that up, and they're like, "Yeah, we did like." 20 maybe 15 percent of the production on that and the rest was her but like we are the ones who got all the credit like that's just the way it was you know so i'm glad things are kind of changing now hopefully it seems they are yeah i think so and i think like you know pioneering people like bjork have helped you know push that conversation forward mm -hmm. i know i like um nico case her uh like Twitter bio or something. All it says is like producer of music. I produce music or something like that. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> because like, that's what we do. Like, listen to us. Like that's what we're telling you. Like, that's what we do. Give us credit basically. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Terrible. Before we go really quick, uh, I have a lightning round. <laughs> oh, okay. Really quick. Um, I always think these are going to be easy and they never are. So okay. let's see. Um, what is one instrument that you wish you could play well? Guitar. <laughs> Why guitar? There's Elec so many. Electric, electric guitar. Specifically electric guitar. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, okay. I want to. I want to. I want to be a shredder in another life. Oh, you could do it. <laughs> no, I'm horrible at guitar. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what is I best or of least worse, least bad film that you've seen since COVID started? Least bad? Or best. I just figure some people have only seen like not great stuff, but have you seen anything great since COVID started? Oh, yeah. Um, gosh, I've seen so many good things. Not even necessarily um, new stuff, just like new to you. 
yeah what did I watch recently that I really oh I watched that movie um Metropolitan oh the Whit Stillman movie with like I forget who's in that now yeah it's just like New York like socialite right 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 pre-mumblecore uh, <laughs> right <laughs> uh, I loved that um and uh I don't know I watch a bunch of things I I re-watched um oh I watched this um Isabel Huppert film who I, I love her um, oh yeah she's great um L um, yeah. which was which was which was pretty good I mean it wasn't like didn't like blow me away but I did like it and she's um, really good I, in it. she's incredible she's yeah. just like I like idolize her and then I saw Zola and I loved oh, I've it. been I've been meaning to get around to that um, one I've seen a, I've seen a lot of different stuff and I've been like re-watching like some like 90s like thrillers like I watched single white female the other night <laughs> and I was just like Jennifer Jason Lee is just like one of my favorite actresses. And now I feel like I have to go on like a tear, like watching all of her movies. Oh, she's so um, good. And, and so under underrated and like underutilized. I feel like she needs to be so incredible. Yeah. I mean, and it also speaks to my like, you know, nineties, like childhood, you know, mm-hmm. she, she was like, you know, that she was like one of those like cool yeah. stars back then. Um, so yeah. That's good. I'm glad you've her. watched a lot of stuff. Yeah. I've watched a ton ton of <laughs> movies and i've watched a ton of colombo which i don't know if you know what that is but it's like a tv show from the 70s. yeah i mean i'm yeah. young but i know what it is <laughs> okay so yeah i've been watching that um because it's like just really like tame sort of like detective stories and right. like really cool sets and clothing and every episode is exactly the same and it's very comforting that's good that's a good like rounded array of things <laughs> um yeah. all right last question what is maybe within the past like five or so years, what is a good habit that you've developed? Yeah, and you said the four, last four or five years? If I mean, if there's one from there or maybe just earlier in your life that you still do. Um, I mean, I guess probably like different like fitness things. Like hmm. um, I got just, you know, much more disciplined about yoga um, and swimming, you know, like these kind of meditative things where I don't have to be like amazing at them, but I do them <laughs> regularly. Um, so those are probably like good habits I've developed. I think also the last one would be like reading before bed as opposed to being on the phone. Like oh, yes. that was something I just changed that um, about two years ago. I was just like, you know, after a certain hour, the phone, the phone gets put down and you just, just reading. And so that, that has, that has helped my mental state a lot. Has it helped you sleep better? Yeah. Mm, I imagine. Yeah. I know I should start doing that. I've I've been thinking of making those kinds of changes. Oh, you should. It's really yeah. helpful. It's like yeah. a small thing that you can do that um really improves your sleep. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Ramona, for talking to me. Yeah, no worries. I really for appreciate to you. it. Yeah, of it was I had a great time. Um the new record No Sun is out August twenty seventh. If it's out already when this goes up, just go listen to it, guys. If it's not out, pre-save it, pre-order it, stream whatever's out from it already. It's really good. Um, enjoy it. Yes, please. Please enjoy it, guys. <laughs> um, so thank you again. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks. Have a good rest of your day. See you later. Bye. Bye.